Good morning. I'll be reading from Ephesians, uh, as Cole said, 2 verses 1 through 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by work, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. All right, good morning, everybody. We're going to talk this morning about the greatest story that's ever been told in history. And the novelist John Gardner said, every story takes two, one of two shapes. Either a hero leaves on an adventure or a stranger comes into town. That's how every story begins. That might not be every story, but that certainly covers a majority of the stories we like to hear. And here's why. Because the great story of what God has done is pressed on every person's heart. And when you hear a story that begins to resonate with that story, even on a subconscious level, we are excited by the fact that we were made to live a story of a stranger coming to town, a prince of heaven coming to earth, being made nothing to save people who had rebelled against his father and bring them into his home forever. That's the story that we're all a part of. And so the question for us is not, do we love that story or do we believe that story even? Because that story is true whether you believe it or not. The question is, you are living in a story that's looking for an ending. What is the end of your story? Probably the best way this story has been told outside the Bible, I think, is in William Manchester's book, The Last Lion. Get this for an intro. He said, the French had collapsed. The Dutch had been overwhelmed. The Belgians had surrendered. The British army trapped, fought fell back to the channel ports to a fishing town called Dunkirk. Behind them lay the sea, and the 200,000 Tommies at Dunkirk, Britain's only hope, seemed doomed. Confronted by the mightiest conqueror Europe had ever known, England looked for another Alfred, a figure cast in a mold which, by the time of the Dunkirk deliverance, seemed to have been lost forever. Like Hitler, he would have to be a leader of intuitive genius, an artist who knew how to gather blazing light of history into his prism and manipulate it to his ends. Who could, if necessary, be just as cruel, just as cunning, just as ruthless, but who could win victories without enslaving populations, foisting off myths of his own infallibility, or destroying the institutions that he had sworn to protect? Such a man, if he existed, would be England's last chance. But in London, there was such a man. Isn't that a great intro? That's great writing because it pits the gravity of the situation to show you the magnitude of the hero. 
And this morning, you're in a story that has a very dark situation. And what this text in Ephesians 2 does is it starts out and wants you to understand just how grave the situation is so that you can see just how amazing the Savior is. See, this story has two parts. If you are in Christ, Paul says, two things have happened to you. You get a new life and you get a new path. And if you understand the situation you're in and you understand the life that you've been given, you realize this is the greatest story that could ever be told. So look at Ephesians 2, verse 1. Paul starts without a very delicate introduction to this story. It just says literally in the Greek, you being dead. We, we kind of soften this in our English Bibles. And you, having been dead in your trespasses and sins, and you were dead, but the Greek is bold. You being dead. Your spiritual condition outside of Christ is deadness. Not just spiritual sickness, not just almost there, not just if you just got a boost or if you just had a little bit of help, you could make it. Our situation outside of Christ is totally flatline dead. And it gets worse. It's not just us. It's not like we're being picked on in this passage. It's everyone who's ever lived from the time of Adam and Eve is spiritually dead outside of Christ. See, what happened in the beginning was Adam and Eve are in the garden. God has created them and said the creation is good. And what he has created is good. And people are very good. And he has put them there to work and keep the garden, to walk among them, to live with them, and to cultivate this garden to fill the entire earth. And then something happens. A serpent comes into the garden and he asks this question. Did God really say that you couldn't touch that? And of course, Eve and Adam, who's beside her, take the fruit and they eat it. But before they do, they protest and they say, oh, God said we would surely die. And do you remember what the serpent says? Oh, you won't surely die. You'll be like God. Your eyes will be opened. And sure enough, Adam and Eve eat the fruit and they don't immediately physically die. And for most of us, we probably read that and we're like, was the snake right? (laughs) They didn't immediately die. Instead, what happened was they were expelled from the garden, they were kicked out of God's presence, they were wandering east of Eden, and the whole rest of the Bible is one long story about God bringing his people back into his presence. And it takes the entirety of history up until Christ to bring his people back from death to life. See, what happened was Adam and Eve didn't physically die the moment they ate the fruit. They spiritually died. And that spiritual death, being apart from God, being out of his presence, leads inevitably to death in every area. Physical death, emotional death, death of a family. You remember what happens right after the story of Adam and Eve? You get the first family chaos in the Bible. And after that, you don't see a great, intact, healthy family again until you see Zechariah and Elizabeth in the opening chapters of Luke. And even they have got problems. Families die spiritually, emotionally. Cultures, civilizations die spiritually. First Corinthians, Paul says, basically, death reigned. From one man comes death, but by one man comes the resurrection of the dead. For in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, as in Adam, all die. So in Christ, all can be made alive. See, death is the condition. And this isn't an insult, it's a diagnosis. Right? This isn't like something that God says to offend you. This is something he says to enlighten you. 
When I was in high school, we brought in this company to do aptitude testing. So you go through this whole two-day thing, and you're doing all kinds of stuff. You're picking up grains of rice with tweezers, and you're trying to read things and comprehend. You're, they're testing you in every which way. And at the end, they do a little consult where they're going to tell you what your aptitudes are and what you should do in life. So anyway, they bring you into this little conference room, and you sit there across from this lady who's been doing the testing. And when I got in there, the lady said, all right, I'm going to tell you something that you probably don't want to hear. And I thought to myself, great, I don't have any aptitudes. I don't have any potential. I don't have anything going for me. She says, this is going to be hard for you to hear, and I don't know if anyone has told you this. I mean, she's really building this up. And I'm like, what is it? She goes, you are colorblind, which if you were here last week for the sermon, you realize I already knew that I was colorblind by the time I was 18. And I said, oh, I already, I already know that. And she says, well, the only reason I tell you that is because if you're colorblind, that rules out certain careers that you can have. And she's like, and that's really hard for some people. I said, like what? She says, well, you're not going to be able to be a fighter pilot. And I thought, the first time I ever got on a plane, I threw up. I throw up in cars. Fighter pilot, not high on my list. She said, you're also not going to be an interior designer. <laughs> and that, that was the one that really hurt <laughs> when she said that. I had to take a couple of days to reevaluate after that. So... What she thought was going to be hard for me to bear was actually enlightening to me because if you go through your life and something is wrong and it's never diagnosed, it's not a kindness for someone not to tell you. Because what you ultimately run up against is if you have a certain kind of diagnosis, there's certain things you can and cannot do. And what Paul is telling us here is with the diagnosis of spiritual death, there's certain things you cannot do. Look back at our text. He goes on and he says, you being dead have the qualities of death. And look at what they are. In chapter 2, verse 2, you dead in your trespasses and sins in which you walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the children of disobedience. One of the qualities of spiritual death is you are just following along with what everybody else is doing. You are walking in the path of the world. You are walking in the path of the devil, who he says the prince of the power of the air in this passage, and you are walking in constant disobedience to God. Not only that, he says, you weren't just disobeying, but you were among those people, which we all have been there, who live in the passions of their flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. See, what the Bible is clear about is one of the conditions of spiritual death is you actually cannot change your own sinfulness. And in fact, it is so bad that you are a slave, this text says, to your desires and your passions and your disobedience and your rebellion against God to the extent that you are by nature a child of wrath. The end of spiritual death is separation and the wrath of God. And he's saying, if you are outside of Christ, this is your path. It may not feel like it just yet, but that's why he's giving you the diagnosis. Here's what's to expect if you walk this way. So Paul, after laying out the conditions of death, reminds us that we actually can't do anything to remedy this condition. You being dead, walking in the ways that you've walked, doing the things that you've done, are an enemy 
of God's. Just as Adam and Eve were cast away from God, guilty before him, wandering away from his face with a guard at the door of the Garden of Eden, keeping them from ever coming back, we find ourselves in the same position. But then in verse 4, Paul gives us the best two-word phrase in the English language, but God. But God. That's the gospel in two words. It's the shortest gospel presentation in the Bible. But God. God, in the condition you were in, with the diagnosis that you'd been given, but God. You were dead, but God. You were obeying somebody else, your passions, your desires, disobeying him, but God. You were, <laughs> your passion was to do something that God had forbidden, but God. Because he was rich in mercy, because he loved you with a great love, because of his grace, God made you alive with Christ and brought you up to the heavenly places and seated you there and gave you everything you will ever need to be back in relationship with him. But God. Now, the important thing about this is all of these, as far as we're concerned, are passive verbs. So it's not because you were dead and God had mercy on you, he allowed you to redeem yourself. No, all of these verbs, God is the subject. He made you alive. He raised you up. He seated you. He showered you with his kindness. He laid out good works for you to walk in. But God, not but God asterisk with our help, but God, because of his own decree and his own thoughts and his own goodness, decided to turn your story around. It's the greatest reversal in history. So the other night we were out for dinner with this huge group of people, and I had forgotten my wallet. Not strategically, I literally had forgotten my wallet. And so, you know, you're kind of like, do they have Apple Pay here? I mean, is this one of those places where you can pay with your phone? And we're with this huge group of people, and all of a sudden food starts coming out. And I could not believe the volume of food that was coming out, because there were a hundred of us in this group. And two salads come out, and then some kind of cheese that I was unfamiliar with came out, and then the main course starts coming out. Lasagna, spaghetti and meatballs, penne pasta, chicken. It was amazing. You could only take a couple of bites of all this. And I start looking around wondering, who's paying for this? Because this is like a 10-course meal. And so I lean over to a buddy and I said, is this just like what they serve here? Or is there a menu? Like, what are we supposed to be doing? He says, Al's got it. I was like, who's Al? <laughs> who's, who is this guy? He's like, don't worry about it. Al's picking up the tab for everybody. I'm like, good for Al. Like, I got to meet this guy. I got to figure out who Al is in this group and thank him for this wonderful dinner. And sure enough, we get up. We never see a check. We walk out of there. Didn't find out who Al was until the next day that he was in our group. And I thought about that in hindsight. It's like, we show up at a restaurant, the only thing we brought was hunger. Especially in my case, I didn't even bring a wallet. All I brought was an empty stomach, but Al, right? <laughs> you were hungry, but Al, okay? You had eaten 10 courses, but Al. And the next day I got to thank him, and he said, you know, obviously it's my pleasure to do this. I love getting to bless people. And I thought, isn't that an amazing picture? Okay, it wasn't that, hey, you were hungry and they decided, okay, since you can't pay, you can go in the kitchen for a little bit and earn it. And it wasn't that once I met him, he said, oh, you, oh okay, this is going to be an IOU that you can pay back 
later. And it wasn't a situation where I brought in hunger and then I helped Al make sure that we could all be fed. It was like, no, the only thing you can do is come in hungry. And once you get there, the only thing you can do is eat. That is the gift of God. God doesn't require you, once he lays out an offer of salvation, to live the rest of your life as an IOU trying to earn back what God has given you. The only thing you can do is sin, and then the only thing you can do is trust. That's it. The finished work of Jesus is the only thing. And when we trust in him, God satisfies us in a way that only he can do. So our story is one where we come in with only need and we leave with only grace. That's God's way. That's God's story. That's his turnaround. That is your story if you're trusting in Christ. You come in hungry. You leave filled. It's like God calls out by name to you. Lazarus, come out. Little girl, arise. His voice reaches through the darkness, reaches through the deadness, and all of a sudden, a heart begins to beat again. In Christ, you have new life. The way he introduces this, the way Paul introduces this is so masterful. It's one long sentence of your condition until he gets to the main punch. But God made you alive. You know what I think is so fascinating about this phrase is Paul and Luke were travel companions. And you read in the book of Acts, which Luke wrote, that Luke was with Paul on his journeys. And we also know that Luke had been interviewing people who had been with Christ about what his ministry was like, what he did, what his death and resurrection were like, so that he could compile a trustworthy account, it says at the beginning of Luke, about all the things that happened concerning Jesus. And in Luke's gospel, we get for the only time among the gospels the most amazing story of a turnaround in the prodigal son. Luke is the only one that tells this story, and he says, Jesus told a story of a son who goes off into the far country, and you know the way it turns out. He's eating from the pigsty, and he rises up and he goes back to his father. And do you remember what the father says when he comes back? My son was dead, but now he's been made alive. In fact, this is one of the only places we see these phrases. And I just wonder if that's a story that Paul and Luke and their travel companions reflected on over and over and over again. You can see it in Paul's language here. We were dead like the prodigal son. And the father made us alive again. My son, my daughter who was dead, is now alive. So this is the turning point in the story. But for most of you in here, if you've trusted in Christ, this is in the past And Paul introduces this in the past. You aren't being raised up with Christ. You've been raised up with Christ. You're not being seated. You've been seated with Christ. You're not in the process of coming alive. You've been made alive. And now the second half of the story is, so what are you going to do about it? How are you going to live your life as a person who's now spiritually alive? Well, you don't just get a new life in this passage. You get a new path in this passage. See, everything before this is talking about the way you used to walk. And this is one of the most common metaphors in the Bible for the way you live your life. Think about Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, but meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. What happens when you come to Christ is you have been turned around, set on a new road, and you have a paved road waiting for you to walk on. And the reason that this is true is because you didn't just make a few changes in your life. What Paul says here 
Even more clearly in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. You are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Think about this. What's the first thing we learn about God in the Bible? If you go to the first page of the Bible, what do you learn about God? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The way that God chose to introduce himself to us is as a creator. He is a creator out of nothing. He is a creator by his word. He is a creator that depends on nothing else. In the beginning, God spoke, and everything that exists came into being. And the story of your life is God spoke and recreated you to be a new person. See, God isn't just a loving father, although he is. And he didn't just send his son to be a great savior, which he did. God is eternally a creator and a recreator of our hearts. So what happens is you have been brought to life, recreated as a new person. And it says you've been raised up and seated so that in the coming ages, God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. This is the gift of God, not as a result of your works so that you may not boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that you might walk in them. As a new creation, you have a new way of life. You have a new way to walk. You have a new path that your feet are set on. And there, there's a characteristic of that path that I want you to see in this passage. If you go to an art gallery, which is there anybody, I think all the kids are gone, but any kids in here that went to the art gallery this week at Crystal Bridges? Anybody in here? So the school took a field trip this week to the Crystal Bridges Museum. And one of the things that you'll see there at the Crystal Bridges is several portraits from John Singer Sargent, one of the great portrait artists of American history. And Laura and I were actually at the Museum of Fine Art in Houston, and they were doing a John Singer Sargent exhibit. And so you walk in and you see all these portraits of people, none of whom do you know. Right, you can go read on the placard who these people are, but oftentimes it's an obscure person, it's a friend of the artist, it's somebody that they don't even know the person's name anymore. Sometimes you just see portrait of a woman, portrait of a man. And it strikes you, why are these paintings of people that nobody knows or cares about in this gallery? Why are we still looking at these paintings? It's not because of the person painted, it's the person who painted it that makes it famous, right? When you go into a gallery, your number one concern is not just what's in the painting, but who created it, who made it. The glory of a painting is the artist, not the subject. So you go in and you see a person that nobody remembers, but everybody loves to look at it because John Singer Sargent or Rembrandt or whoever painted it. In fact, if you think about it, the only difference between a forgery and the real thing, a forgery which would go for next to nothing, and the real thing that would go for millions of dollars is not what it looks like. Most of us with the naked eye, we can never tell the difference between the real thing and a forgery. The difference is whose hand held the brush? Who painted it? Who made it? See, the point of our life now is not that we're going to be awesome. 
It's that we are God's workmanship, or you could translate this word masterpiece or creation. We are God's masterpiece, and if you are a masterpiece, that means it's not about you, it's about the master, right? It's not about our lives now reflecting glory to us. Your goal now with your life is to give glory to God for what he's done. A great way to think about this is we are now trophies of God's grace that point to something else. Something that happened in the past, a major triumph that we were a part of. We are a trophy of the grace of God. We are masterpieces that point to the master who made us. One of the wonderful things about God is he doesn't just like to talk about what he's done. He likes to display it. It's not just what does the grace of God look like in abstract. It's ask that person about it. Look at what God did in that person's life. Look at what God is doing in this situation. God loves to put his work on display for the world to see. And now you are a masterpiece of God's grace and his glory. You were created to be a masterpiece who engages in good works. Now we get all wrapped up around this sometimes theologically. Okay, What's the role of faith? What's the role of good works? We're not earning our salvation, but you're telling me it is necessary to walk in good works? That kind of sounds like earning. And I think the best way for us to understand this is works are not proof that you are savable. Works are proof that you have been saved. Right? You don't bring your works and say, God, does this measure up? You say, because I've been saved, I'm on a new path. I am now following God's course for my life. I think Augustine put this really well. He said, when you're outside of Christ, one of the qualities of spiritual death is you are not free not to sin. Now, Augustine could have used a good English class with that double negative, but not free not to sin. All you can do is sin. But when you come to Christ, now you are free not to sin. That doesn't mean your life is immediately perfect. It doesn't mean that you always make the best choice. It doesn't mean you always reflect God's glory. But you're on a new path. You're pointed in a new direction. Your life is characterized for the first time by the freedom to please God. Did you know that when you come to Christ, the first thing that you do if you give him glory or you are grateful or you love him or you love somebody else, it's the first time in your life that you are walking in the freedom to please God. And our lives are characterized by God's good pleasure. You are free not to sin. But there's another stage coming. When we die and we go to heaven and we are glorified, Augustine says, then we are not free to sin. At that point, the only thing we're free to do is glorify God completely and wholly. We went from all sin to the freedom not to sin to one day the freedom to only Love God completely and truly. Now, Paul gives us one more quality of the new life at the end of this passage, and this is such a famous verse. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. See, your life now as a Christian is not, okay, God did all this for you. He set you on a new path. You better make the best of it. His, his goal is not having begun by the Spirit, now muster up all your energy and complete it in the flesh. Instead, what God did was he cut the trail of the new path that you're walking on. See, what, what happens is, as a Christian, your day is waiting for you before you get up. 
God has ordained and prepared and equipped you to walk in these good works every day of your life. It's like a chain reaction of God's grace taking off the moment your head comes off the pillow. God ordained beforehand for you to have good works to walk in. Works that are loving to your neighbor, works that are sacrificial, works that are loving towards God, works that are glorifying to Christ, works that nobody may see except you, works that are so small that you just get that little nudge from the Spirit. You should do this. You should say that. You should reach out to them. Your day is ordained for you before you even get up. So if you have new life in Christ, your life is one day after another glorifying God on a new path, spiritually alive, responsive to him, telling through every day the greatest story that's ever been told. This is our plot. The state of humanity was hopeless. The rebel army had all but won. The powers of sin had so corrupted God's good creation that every area of the earth had turned away from him. Led by sinful desires and unrighteous passions, it looked like the only answer was God's wrath. If there were any hope for salvation, the Savior would need to be powerful enough to bind up the ruler of this world, the prince of darkness, the strong man, but tender enough to bring back the lonely lost lamb, lowly enough to offer himself as a payment, mighty enough to clear the debt for every sin. If there were any hope, this Savior would need to be the king of heaven, seated at the right hand of God Almighty, and a man of sorrows, friend of sinners, despised, rejected, crucified. Such a man, if he existed, would be our only chance. And in heaven, there was such a man. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son and the new life that comes through him. Father, I pray by your spirit this week, you would point our eyes to the path that you have ordained for us. Father, the pleasing and perfect plan you have for us every day of our life. Help us to be sensitive to what you're pushing us to do. Help us to have the courage to step out and follow your call. Father, help us have hearts that are sensitive and grateful that we were dead and now we're alive. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus, who came to save sinners, who came when we were dead to make us a part of your family. We pray in Jesus' name.